Good morning. It is great to be here. Hope that you feel the same way. We have so much going on, even just today. It's just wearisome, but it's a good wearisome. As, before you leave, if you get a chance, it's going to be out there a couple weeks. There's giant directories of all our members and their information. You'll see all the information we want. They're in different places from these tables out here to the welcome table to the uh, the the podiums and all the entrances. It's going to have your information on there, and if you'll just check it and make sure it's right and fill in what we don't have and then put an X by it, we'll be giving everybody a copy of a, an updated directory because it's just so outdated it's not even funny now. Uh, right after services, how many are staying? Let me get an idea. How many are staying? Good. You're in for a treat. It's a lot of fun, a lot of good food, and a lot of good singing and talent or whatever that is called, uh, an attempt at it anyway. Tonight, I really, th this is something we've, we've thought about for a lot, of, a lot of times, but we've actually planned this out very carefully, a singing tonight. We want to just get used to hearing each other, but also, Larry Colbert, I don't think Larry Colbert's here, I think he's here in the early service, but he used to sing at bay all the time, lead singing at bay all the time, and he told me about it, and he says, his voice just isn't strong enough anymore, and I got to thinking, I don't want guys like that to just fade off. And so I asked him, if we did a singing night, would you, would you just kind of preserve your voice and lead a couple songs? He said, well, I can try it, so tonight he's going to try it. And I, I'm gonna, I won't even be here because I forgot about a youth thing going on. That makes me so mad. But you're going to be able to see it. And when you see it, I hope you just swell with pride at seeing up here again. And then Drew Ferguson, who's never... He, he's never led singing for us before, and he's wanted to for a while. I thought, let's put him up there. Some new songs, some scripture readings by young people to give you a chance to breathe in between. It's going to be a great night tonight. Do not fail to come back if you at all can, okay? And those of you who are Arkansas fans, I want to say thank you because I was feeling so bad about ASU, and then the way the night ended, nobody cared about ASU. Our school colors are red because we were bloody after Alabama. But then after Arkansas got done playing, nobody cared what happened to ASU. I just want to say thank you very much for that. If you'll make your way to Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be there in just a moment. Jesus loves me, this I know. loves me yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me the Bible tells me so so I've got a question I want you to really consider and that is this what are you working on to improve right now in your life I've been hearing this week with the Heritage Banquet coming up today I've been hearing young people practice their talents you know I can hear them down the hall. The noises are very interesting. It's obvious to me that Cade has gotten much better in playing the guitar. You're going to hear that tonight, this afternoon, over here. It's obvious that he's practiced this over the year, and he's working on getting better. And the question is, what are, what are you working on getting better at? We have some people practicing sports in, in their schools, and then they have games. And the games are kind of a way to gauge the improvement of your sports. And, and you know yourself, 
with Lads to Leaders here, a great program. You've been witnessing young people get up here over time and leading singing and scripture reading, even devotionals they're leading. And you see from one to another, they're getting better and better at this because they're working at it. What are you, what are you working at? What are you striving to improve? We even had men at Valley View who, you know what, we're not real comfortable with teaching, but this summer we had them get one class together, and they taught that one class several times over the summer for our summer series. They did something. They, they took on a challenge they didn't feel comfortable with because they needed to grow in that area. They're working on something. What are you working on? Spiritually, what are you working on improving in your life? Because what's true of everything is what's true spiritually. You won't get better at what you're not working at. Isn't that true? When you're younger, it's a little easier to do this because you're in school and you're forced to improve. Whenever you take a test or you turn in a homework assignment, it comes back with that big red letter or number at the top of the page. That's telling you, are you getting better or not? And you go to sports, and you get practicing sports, and then you're at the free throw line in a game. You're going to be able to tell whether you're improving or not. Or you're handed the ball at third down and two. It's, it's time to tell whether you're getting better or not. What are we doing to progress in our spiritual lives? I think it's a question we need to ask because it doesn't just happen with age. Just because you've lived a certain period of time doesn't mean you've got this spiritual maturity. It takes an effort, intentional engagement of something to grow spiritually. So I was watching the apostles in Matthew chapter 8, witnessing them, on, witnessing them as they handle this storm that comes up. And they reminded me a little bit of the Cardinals this past week, unfortunately. And if you're watching the Cardinals, you're seeing them bring in a closer who doesn't close. Now, a closer, by definition, who doesn't close can't be a closer, right? He comes in and he blows a game. The announcers didn't say the next game. All the way through the game, these know-it-all announcers are saying, well, the only way to treat this is to give him the ball again. Let him redeem himself. He wants to show that last night wasn't the norm, so they give him a chance to redeem. He didn't redeem. He repeats. He did the same thing again. And so you, you begin to see that they wanted another crack at it. They wanted another test, but when he got another test, he did the exact same thing. And so the apostles are going to show us some tests on the sea. And the first one we just read a moment ago, Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 23 beginning. We're going to go through this in a list. I want you to see Jesus, first of all, was in the boat first, and then the apostles, the disciples, get in the boat with him. And it says when they got in the boat and they started rowing out, there was this horrible storm. And the word for the storm in Greek is seismos. What's that sound like to you? Seismic, earthquake, that's kind of a, it's a seismic, this is not a normal storm. This is a ferocious storm. And these guys who are in the boat are, are largely fishermen. They've been around the sea all their lives, this sea all their lives. And so they're experienced at handling these kinds of storms that, by the way, guys, just whip up in a moment. It goes from still to stormy on a dime. You notice that life does this? It doesn't give you a warning. It doesn't give you a postcard. It just goes boom, and suddenly the winds from the, the, from the mountains around it form a funnel, and boom, here comes the storm. And so these disciples are in this storm. Jesus, it says, was sleeping, like Daryl Hyde sleeping. 
Now, one of, the sto- one of the scriptures, one of the passages says that when Jesus got on the boat, he took a cushion with him. Now, have you ever been to churches? Slicer Street was like this, and Valley View amazes me. Slicer Street had blankets and put pillows all through the auditorium. You ever been to churches like this? Anybody? I, I, I think it's they get cold. But anytime I see somebody bring a pillow into church, it's one thing to fall asleep just in the way things are going. It's another thing to bring a pillow and say, I'm planning on it. And that's what Jesus was doing. He brought a pillow on this boat, and he falls asleep. And so this storm is raging. It says the, the waves are way above the, the boat. It's capsizing the boat. They're taking in water. And Jesus is just sleeping. I don't know how you do this, but he did it. And so there's the Son of God sleeping, right? And the disciples, who are, again, experienced fishermen, have done everything they can, but they don't know what else to do, and it's getting out of control, and they wake him up. Save us, Lord, we're going to perish. You have the Son of God in your boat. But you still feel like you're going to perish, and so they wake him up. And Jesus, before he stills the storm, he looks at them and says, What's wrong with you? Nobody likes to be waking up. Nobody likes somebody to disturb their sleep. And Jesus says, Why were you afraid? And he says it in a way that says, you should have been able to not be afraid. Why were you afraid? And he says, you are little faith ones. You have little faith. And Jesus then rebuked the winds and the sea, and it produces a calm. And it says of the disciples, they looked at each other and said, who in the world is this? And they ask each other this, and they marvel, and that's how the story ends. Now, the way that Jesus reacts to them. It's a reprimand. They felt it that way. They got a, This was a test for them. They've already been with Jesus for a while. They've seen him do amazing things, and they should have been capable of succeeding. A teacher does not give a test to students unless the teacher knows the test can be passed. You do not, on purpose, give them a test they cannot they cannot succeed at. Jesus knows they should have been capable of surviving this and handling this, but they weren't. And so they get a test paper with a big, fat, red F, or maybe D minus at the best. Does it go so well? And they feel it. And they learn something from that, but they feel the failure. And as a disciple, all that you would want to do is say, Ugh, I want to redeem myself. I want another shot at it. Will they get one? Turn over to Matthew chapter 14. Test number one, not so great. D minus at the best on that paper. And now in Matthew chapter 14, they're going to get another chance. But I want you to know it's not just another chance a day later. It's a chance with several things that they've witnessed since then. They've seen Jesus since then. Since that failure on the sea, they've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal a paralytic by lowering the guy through the roof, and Jesus forgives his sin and and heals him. And then he tests the Pharisees, and then he calls more disciples, and then he restores this woman to life and heals a bleeding woman. And the 12 apostles then, even at this point, now that he's got 12, he sent them out on a limited commission, and they did some preaching, and they did some teaching, and get this, they did some miracles themselves by the authority of Jesus. And then Jesus feeds 5,000 people here in in Matthew chapter 14. You see it in verse 13. He feeds 5,000 people, and it says he made the disciples get in a boat. 
He made them then get in a boat. This time they were without him. Ooh, up the ante. First time they're in a storm, Jesus is in the boat. This time, Jesus isn't in the boat. And it's interesting to me when Jesus said, I'm going to send you out over on the other side and then I'll come join you. They had the only boat. How did they think he was going to get over there? You don't think about that when you're forced. And so he forces them out there. And he goes up on a mountainside and he prays. So the last time Jesus was sleeping, now he's up there praying and the disciples are out on this boat, out in this boat on the, on the seashore, out in the middle of the sea. As SpongeBob would say with a little postcard, poster, seven hours later. It says, fourth watch of the night between three and six in the morning. They had been rowing for several hours and they were three to three and a half miles offshore and the wind was wreaking havoc. Not necessarily a storm this time, but the, they were going this way. The wind was coming this way. They had been rowing with all their might for seven hours. They were getting nowhere. They were frustrated and they were fatigued. And as they're still rowing, as they're still trying to figure out, uh, they start looking, and, and they've experienced a lot of things on the sea. They've experienced storms and winds and weird things on the sea, but they've never experienced what they're about to see. A man is walking on the water. That's one thing no fisherman's ever seen before. And you've got a choice. When you see a man walking on the water, you're thinking either that's a guy walking on the water or that's a ghost, and they choose ghost. And when you see ghosts, I want a show of hands. How many think Casper? How many are terrified because you're thinking the worst thing possible? That's most of us. They're looking at a ghost and they're saying, we are dead, and they start crying. I don't know who they're crying to. I don't know what they're saying. It doesn't matter. They're just like, man, this is weird. But as they cry out, Jesus speaks to them. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I'm here. And then one of the most inspiring scenes in the New Testament, although we often mess this up, is that Peter says, I'll tell you what, Lord, if that's really you, let me come out there. I want to try my hand or feet at this. I want to try my feet at this. Tell me to come to you on, on the ocean. And he doesn't calm the winds first. No, no, he lets the winds be raging and the spitting of the sea rising up and wave. And, and, and he says, come on out there. And Peter starts walking on the water, the only person besides Jesus to ever do this. And how amazing is it for a guy to have that much faith? And he goes walking out there, and then he loses faith. And then he goes, what am I doing? I'm a fisherman. I know what the sea looks like, and I know what it can do in storms like this. He sinks. Jesus saves him. And then that deja vu word, Jesus says to him, you little faith one, why did you doubt? And he says it like, Peter, you've seen enough. You've experienced enough, and you even walked a little bit. How in the world could suddenly you not believe in me when we've done this already? We've been through enough, Peter. You should have trusted me. Just get back in the boat, and the wind dies down. Everything stops, and the disciples... And I want you to read this with me. The disciples say... As the wind ceased, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, We know who you are. The Son 
of God. From a question to a statement of faith. The disciples get this do-over. And I want you to know as we compare the two stories, there's some improvement with these guys. They didn't get an A here. They don't get an A back on their paper, but it's not a D either. It's not a D minus. It's more like a B maybe. And, 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 and they're gaining trust, and they're gaining some confidence, and they're maturing, and they're growing. The things they learned in the first storm and between the first storm and this one begin to pay off. Growth happens with their efforts that they've made since the last time and their reflection on the first experience. And so I'm going to ask you again, what are you working on spiritually in your life? What are you working toward? I, I have a couple of things I want you to notice about this. First of all, uh, the difference between the first and the second time is you need to keep your eyes on the master. You need to study him. That's one of the things we need to do, is that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus because so many times we have our eyes on all the things around us and all the things that give us anxiety and fear and nervousness and all the stuff people are saying. We're looking at all this stuff instead of looking at him. And, and Jesus says, you need to look at me and learn to trust me. In the first storm, Jesus was sleeping sleeping on a cushion in the boat. And there are going to be some people say he was sleeping because he was exhausted. I don't, I don't care how exhausted you are. If you're on a little boat in a big sea in the waves, you're going to be awake. Unless, unless you have such confidence that nothing bad can happen to you that you're just lulled into a sleep. And that's where Jesus was. He had such confidence that he was under God's care and he knew that his time had not come yet. He knew what God was planning, and he knew what God was using this to increase the faith of the people around him, and he just was able to go to sleep. There can be a lot of things wrong in your life, and a lot of things amiss, and, and, and not the way you'd like them to be in your life, but get this, if you're right with God, you can sleep. Psalm 3 says this, I lay down and slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David says there can be a bunch of people after me hunting me down, but I'm right with God, I'm at peace with Him, and He will let me sleep. And I want you to know something. If you know who's rocking the boat, and you trust the hand of the one who's rocking the boat, you can sleep in the middle of that boat no matter what the sea's doing. Can you trust Him enough? Jesus says, the more faith you have, the less fear you have. The more fear you have, the less faith you have. There is a correlation. So if you have a lot of faith, a lot of fear with a little stuff happening in this life, ramp up that faith and trust in Him. You should be able after some years of experience and knowing Jesus better and better and studying Him and, and experiencing life with Him, your fears should subside and your faith should increase. That's the way it should go. In the second story, Jesus is calm, right? He's praying and then He's walking on the water. It's like He's got this blessed assurance, right? He's not a laid-back guy, a type B personality. It's not a personality thing. It is a faith thing. Study the Master. It's sweet to trust Him so much that He actually makes a difference in what you face in this life. Keep your eyes on the Master. Second thing I'd say is this. Learn from your experience. Or better, learn from reflecting on your experience. If you blow it in one storm in life, then you ought to look for the other. Now let me give you, let me, let me test some of you who, who think you know Paul real well. I want you to think back to 2 Corinthians, written somewhere around Acts 20 in time. 
and he has been shipwrecked on the sea how many times? Anybody remember? Three. And spent a complete night and day out on the open sea, just kind of drifting off, I guess. That is creepy. Anybody think it's creepy to spend an entire night out in the open ocean? That's creepy. If you don't think that's creepy, you're creepy. Okay, so that's, that's, that happens in, in, in three times in 2 Corinthians. And then you get to the end of Acts, Acts 27, and there's this horrendous, long, I mean, weak, this huge, long storm that just threatens to, to, to take the ship and all the men that are in it. And there's Paul, just as calm as a cucumber, helping people endure this storm, telling them exactly what it's going to take to survive it. How does a guy handle a moment like that so well? And I'll give you the answer. He's been here, and he's done that. He's got the T-shirt, and he learned the lesson. He's been here before, and he's like, God's been with me before, so I'm going to count on him now. I don't have to learn the same thing over and over again. He's already proven himself. Now I'm just going to assume he's going to be there and be trustworthy. That's what I'm going to assume he's going to do. The experience means the next time when you face something like this, you should have greater faith. There's some work that you do. If you take your praxis ten times, you're not necessarily going to pass it on the tenth time without doing anything. You discover your weakness from the previous nine times and you ramp up on that subject that you need. Your ACT will not increase by four just because you take it eight times more. It, when you take it and you see what your weakness is and you go and you work on that weakness, the next time you take it you should be better. And that's where we are. Now let me say something. I'm not going to put words in their mouth, but let's take the Leafs for a moment. The Leafs, the Leafs have been through this horrendous experience and there's no one who can, no one at Valley View who should be able to say, I'm not really sure whether prayer is significant or works or not. There's nobody here who has an excuse to believe that prayer may not work or God may not respond to it. The least have been through this experience over a month or two. Now, here's my question. I want you to shake your head yes or no. It seems to me it should be harder to upset the faith of the Leafs and disturb their belief in prayer now than it was two months ago. Okay, you don't get this. All right. Um, this means yes, and this means no. Let me say it again. It should be harder to disturb the faith and disrupt the belief that they have in God and prayer now than it was two months ago. It should, and, and by correlation, it should us too. We went through this with them. If you're a Valley View member and you still struggle with whether prayer matters or not, I'm sitting there going, where have you been? Where in the world have you been? And so once you go through this experience, and I'll say this to Abby every once in a while, she'll face this challenge, somebody says something about her and, and makes her feel bad and down on herself, and I'll, I'll come up to her and say, listen to me carefully. I've said that, I can't tell you how many times she'll complete the sentence for you. Your heart has been open and fixed, and your brain has been open and fixed. This is no big deal. When you've been through that, the threshold of what should disturb you should go way up here. You are responsible for applying the lessons of past tests to future experiences. 
It should be harder to disrupt us. It should be harder to, to cause us to be frustrated. It should be almost impossible for us to not believe in prayer together as a church after what we've experienced together. We are responsible for practicing what we've already learned in the future when it happens to us. The apostles learned this. And we're not just talking about trials like this. We're talking about temptations. Listen, if you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian since a long time, and you are not handling your lust now at 40 any better than you were at 12 or 15, something is wrong. You should be learning from past experience, and you should learn how to recognize what it is and what you need to do. That doesn't mean you'll ever totally solve it, but church, we got to get better at this. If you gossiped when you were 20 and 25 years old, and you're 50 or 60 right now, and you're still talking, shooting from your mouth all the time, the same junk as before, something's wrong. We've got to grow up. We've got to mature, and we are responsible. We are responsible for doing work to make our ourselves better. The apostles learn from experience and so should we. There's a third thing I want you to see here. It's almost, it's a little bit harder to see, but we should know our Bible. We should know our Bible so that we can recognize when it's being fulfilled in our lives. You know, sometimes scripture is fulfilled in our lives and we don't know it, and we lose an opportunity to go, whoa, that was cool. There's moments when, I've, I'm, I'm telling you, there's moments in your life, and every one of you know it, when you should be going crazy like everybody else, and for some reason, some reason you have a peace inside of you, peace beyond all understanding. And at that moment, when you have that peace, when, 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 when realistically you should be losing your mind, you should go, wow, that's what God's talking about. That verse, peace that passes understanding. How many of you ever experienced that? You should know, man, that's a verse. Or maybe you're content when everybody else is running around after all this stuff, and you're like, you know what, I just feel content. I'm totally content. I, I, yeah, I'd like to have more stuff, or, but I'm totally content. And you go, that's what Paul's talking about. We're no longer memorizing verses for a test in a Bible class or, or for lads to leaders. Now you're, now you're knowing Scripture for life. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin. It's so that I can do battle. It's not in order to impress anybody with how many verses I know. It's in order for me to be equipped to slaughter the temptation that's just around the corner. Now it's for my life. Now it's for my spiritual sustenance and growth. I'm not doing this for anybody else, and nobody else knows, and it doesn't matter. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In this particular passage, once you know, it's Job chapter 38. Just think about this. And by the way, Jews would know this better than we do. We don't know our Old Testament so well. But in Job, do you remember Job's complaining, God, why are you allowing all this to happen? And his friends were saying, well, obviously you've done something wrong. And Job says, No. In fact, I want God to answer. I want God to give me an explanation for why this stuff's happening to me. And God does speak. But he does not answer his question. He bypasses the question and starts describing himself. And God says, have you entered into the springs of the deep or walked in the recesses of the deep? This is a series of questions like a shotgun he gives to Job. He says, by the way, Job, you ever walked in the deep waters of the ocean? Well, no, that's not where people go. I go there. And Job is so overwhelmed, he doesn't need an answer anymore. He doesn't require an answer. He just believes in God. And I want you to know, 
in this particular story, both of them, Jesus is demonstrating he's walking in the recesses of the deep, which makes you go what? As a, as a, as a Jewish believer, you're going, I know my scripture, and there's only one person. There's only one person who can walk in the depths of the deep, and that's God. There are other passages like this. I want to throw one on the screen here, I think. Yeah, that's hard to read. I'm going to read it off here. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. This is Psalm 65. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell on the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. This is out of the songbook of a Jewish person in the synagogue, and they sung this before. And so the God, our God, who is almighty and righteous and awesome, he, he he roars, you know, he, he stills the roar of the sea, he stills the roar of the waves, and he calms the people. And they're in a boat with this man named Jesus, and he calms the storm. And what are they supposed to be thinking? Then there's that weird one where he tells the people in the boat, especially before Peter gets out there. He says this thing called, It is I. You see that in Matthew 14. Be of good courage, don't be afraid, it's me. The real construction of that is, I am. Don't be discouraged, don't be afraid, I am. Now what does that mean to a Jewish person? Tell me one Bible character who heard that first. Moses. When Moses says, Man, who are you and who am I going to tell them is, is sending me to them? And he says, I'm, here, here's my name, I am. So what's Jesus saying? This is another moment where you learn who God is and that's me. And then there's one other. There's one other I want you to see that is so totally weird. In Mark's version of this, you may remember this, in Mark's version, they're struggling at the oars trying to get this boat on the other side and Jesus comes walking out, but it says Jesus was walking by them. He was going to walk on by them. Yeah, I see. I see you're struggling. So sorry. See you on the other side. And he's going to keep walking. What in the world is that? Mark is like saying, you know, Jesus is just going to walk on by like, well, sorry you're struggling. Maybe if you make it to the other side, I'll see you. Right? That's not what he's doing. Look at Exodus chapter 32 here. Chapter 33, verse 21. Moses had said to God, I want to see you. And God says, there's this place by me where you can stand on a rock while I pass by. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to cover you with your hand until I pass by. And then I'm going to take my hand and you can see my back because you can't see my face and live. There's this moment where he says, you want to see me? This is as close as anybody can get because it would destroy you to see me face to face. So I'm going to let you see me as I go by. And as, as I'm right upon you, I'll put my hand over you so you can't see me and die. But on the other side, when it's safe, I will remove my hand and you'll be able to see my back. Do you know what he's doing on the sea? when he's going to walk by them. I'm going to show you God. But I'm going to show you as I go by. I'm putting my hand over you. You're safe. Nothing's going to happen to you. I'm going to walk on by, and then when it's safe, you can see me. I'm going to show you God up close. I'm going to take care of you in this, and I'm going to show you up close. I'm going to pass by. And I want to tell you this. Those of you who know this is true. If you're going through a difficult time, you're wondering, where in the world is God in this? 
Where is he? Why is he letting this happen, this setback that's happened to my child, or this, this thing that's happened to me that's so traumatic? Where is he? Everybody tells me God's loving me and he's taking care of me. Where is he now? And you want to know, and you don't see it, but later on, after he's passed by, you're going to open your eyes and you're going to realize he was there all along. I just didn't know it. You don't see God until after the fact. So many of us miss Him in the actual time, and it's designed this way. God seems to design it this way. You only see Him in hindsight. And then you go, oh my goodness, He was there all along. And now next time when you're here again, it should not disrupt your character. It should not shake you to the very core of your being because you know better than to believe your feelings. You know better than to believe your doubts. You're going to be going, I don't really understand what he's doing here, but I know he's here right now in real time. I know it because he's proven it too many times to doubt it now. But you've got to go through this a couple of times. And those of you who've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. One last thing, I promise this is it. Study the Master, learn from your experience, know your Bible. It's only going to help you grow more and more. But here at some point, and I'm saying to a lot of you who are just kind of wishy-washy or wondering, at some point you just have to stop asking questions and you simply have to worship. I'm not sure any of us ever arrive at a point where we don't have questions that we want answered or doubts that we would like to have stilled and silenced. The first storm ended with the disciples saying, Who is this? And they were amazed. But that's all it led to. Who is this? He's amazing. The second time, they said, We know He's the Son of God and we're going to worship they still had questions. It wasn't a perfect faith. They didn't get through it with an A+. They still had a lot of things to grow and a lot of things to know and a lot of things to learn. But they knew enough to take their doubts and fears to his feet rather than let it obstruct them from getting there. They decided we're going to go ahead and worship. At some point in time, you have to decide who is he. Take your questions, your doubts, and take them to the master's feet. Quit demanding that he answers all your doubts and all your questions before you bow. He doesn't have to. You're going to live with some of these, and he's going to be Lord, and he's going to be God, even with your fears and doubts, and you're going to let him. You decide to trust him with your uncertainty because he's already been trustworthy in everything else. I'm not saying you have to have a faith that's blind or that you have to disregard that inner angst that you will feel. I'm saying worship Him anyway because what you know of Him is enough to overcome what you don't. It's enough. It's what makes Him God. These guys in chapter 14 are much further along than they were in chapter 8. But they're not where they're going to be after chapter 28. They're not there yet, but they know enough. And they trust enough to take all those doubts and fears and just lay them at his feet and worship anyhow. One of my favorite scenes in movies, one of my favorite, you know, everybody has these lines they remember. One of my favorite is from The Untouchables. You got that iconic voice of Sean Connery telling Elliot Ness how he's going to get Al Capone after all this time of going after him and he can't see me. Weasels out all the time. And he says, you want to get Capone? I'll tell you how to get Capone. And he says... What are you prepared to do? 
What are you prepared to do? You're going to get close to him. You're going to get near him. What then? What are you preparing to do? And then one day, these guys get him. They find out where Sean Connery is, and they shoot him up, right? And he's crawling along trying to survive, but he's going to die, and he's gurgling with blood. In his, and there's Elliot Ness standing over him, and he says, what? And Sean Connery says, what are you <coughs> prepared to do? He wants to remind what are you doing? God has a destiny for you, and here it is. You want to know what God's destiny for you is? He wants you and plans for you to be like Jesus. In this life, he, he wants you to experience where there's storms going on and you can sleep like Jesus. He wants you to know what it's like when there's tumult and circumstances are crazy, how you can go up on a mountainside and pray. And he wants you to be like Jesus in that when the winds are blowing and boy, you have wondered what's going on in your life, you can just go walking. But if you're going to get there, it doesn't happen just by staying still and living and waiting until that time comes. You've got to be doing something. We've got to be growing and maturing as a church and as people. What are you doing to grow up and not be a spiritual baby anymore? What are you doing? That's my question. If anybody needs to respond, the time to do so is now as we stand and as we sing. I care not.